This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Don't get wrapped up in tactics because the narrative, the message, the strategy is everything. For instance, right now, everybody wants to talk about digital communication, especially when you're talking about advocacy. And it is a powerful tool, and it's great. However, it is a commodity, uh, and it is a tactic. Without the narrative that goes with your digital program, you can't attract people to take action on whatever it is you're trying to do. So number one is that. And number two, especially if you're on Capitol Hill or if you're in the government relations community, never forget that the toes you step on today just might be connected to the butt that you need to kiss tomorrow. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to this episode of 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. We're continuing our series of looking at the importance of strategic political communications and the different approaches taken by individuals who essentially have had similar backgrounds. Tonight, our guest expert is Stuart Roy, President of Strategic Action Public Affairs. Stuart, welcome to 80 Proof Politics, and cheers. Uh, thank you, Bill. Cheers first, I guess. There you go. Outstanding. Yeah, happy to be here. Always happy to talk about public affairs issues and how we can improve the profession and help people do a better job of advocating their public policy issues. Tonight we're broadcasting from a quaint joint just south of Old Town Alexandria that's got a great atmosphere cozy setting. You can often find friends gathered around a cocktail, a glass of wine, the big screen TV, and quite often some fresh handmade cooking. Unfortunately, I have to tell you that it is a bit exclusive. I mean, you pretty much have to know the owner to get invited to this place because we're broadcasting tonight from the screened-in porch of Stuart and Shelley Roy. And Stuart, I can't imagine a more perfect setting for such a gorgeous evening on the cusp of the fall season. It is really, it's been a spectacular day. I mean, what was it, uh, 30-something percent humidity? Oh, yeah, one of those rare... 78 uh, degrees or something outside. It's perfect day. I've always said Washington gets about five perfect days a year, and I'm afraid we burnt one today. I, there's no doubt. <laughs> So, Stuart, you have been president of Strategic 
Action Public Affairs since 2012. I want to start by asking you what is your approach to client representation and how do you guys differentiate yourself in this crowded public affairs field? Let me tell you what we don't do rather than what we do because what we don't try to what we try not to do is to be all things to all people. So we don't try to do full service uh, communication. We try to focus on the things that we know that we do best, which is basically falls into one of three buckets. One would be general corporate communication, whether that's for a trade association or for a, a company. Secondly would be fall into the crisis space, which can have different meanings, certainly, but it's as a business owner, it's certainly hard to run a business only on crisis communication, even though some people find it you know, pretty exciting and interesting. And then in the advocacy space, I call it the non-lobbying advocacy space, where we're helping enhance the government relations function, whether that's regulatory or whether that's um, legislative in the federal space or um, in uh, state legislators, legislatures, uh, where uh, we are helping the government relations team advance the public policy of that company or that trade association. So, that, the, so the, that's really where we focus is in those three areas. We don't try to do uh, marketing communication. Sometimes I describe it this way. If you have a brand new brand of uh, toothpaste and you're trying to sell it nationwide, you're not going to call us to help you market that. But if the FDA is going to regulate your, F, your, your toothpaste out of business, we're going to be at the top of the list. And so that's, what, that's how we um, sometimes describe what we do because sometimes it is unless you're living and breathing in the Washington DC or a state capital atmosphere sometimes it's hard to understand exactly you know what does lo non-lobbying advocacy mean yeah you and, know you've touched on something that we really haven't talked about much on 80 proof politics and that is advocacy within this regulatory environment so you're talking about uh, lending value to a corporate government affairs need to interact with a regulatory agency is that both on the front end when they're trying to get something accomplished or is it strictly dealing with some bad regulatory impact we've done both but i found over time that people are much more willing to spend money to fund an effort once they're already in trouble <laughs> it's unfortunate but it's how the world works um, and so it's often when people's hair is already on fire that they, you know, they want to hire outside help and, and, and try to move the ball at that stage. And you know, a lot of times people don't understand how you could help in a regulatory environment. They can, they can get it in a legislative environment. I know I need to contact my member of Congress. They need to see our company's economic footprint and job footprint um, in their state or in their uh, congressional district. Um, but but how, do you, how do you affect what an unelected regulator wants to do or right. should do. And so, so you know, that's a, sometimes a, a difficult thing to address uh, with some clients or potential clients until they can see the value of doing things to advance their uh, regulatory agenda outside of the, the parameters that are set for you with hearings or, you know, um, you know with, with sending letters to the to the regulator or meeting with the regulator. And just to be clear, no one from your team is physically going to the agency and delivering a message. You're helping from the inside, crafting that communication strategy. Right. Well, we, we, we both craft the strategy, but we also uh, pride ourselves in that we also execute okay. on behalf of the client. So, for instance, we don't try to take over what the client's doing. We're not regulatory experts on everything we get hired to do. 
but we are experts on advocating. So let me give you an example. So they, the FDA is uh, you know, interested in uh, a medical device or some other um, issue, and as part of the regulatory process, whether that's the advance notice of proposed rulemaking or some other stage in the rulemaking process, all the, the good alphabet soup of Washington, D.C., um, they're going to have hearings. Well, of course you're going to hear from the industry, and of course you're going to hear from the, that company or that association that feels like they're being picked on or is affected. But what we help do are find other people who are affected by that regulation other than just industry to help make the same case gotcha. uh, with the agency. And that can take many forms tactically, whether that's testifying. You know, and then it's not limited just to those the rules that are set by the agency, but they're people too. Regulators are people too, and they're affected by what they read and see in the newspaper and online. And uh, there's many ways to to talk about those same things, those same issues, outside of just the regulatory process. So separate from just that drilling deeper on that regulatory aspect of what you all do, is there a difference in representing a corporate client versus a trade association? <clears throat> well, that's a good question. That we That's our hallmark here at 80 Proof Politics. <laughs> it's a good question. Good question. Yes, yeah. Um, and what we've learned over time is there are a, really, a lot of really smart corporate communicators, mm. but they're not very, generally speaking, they're not very um, experienced in, in this particular realm in communicating in state w- with governments, in, uh, whether it's uh, state legislatures and, and or whether lead it's to in D.C. A, does, that, sorry, does that lead to a certain reluctance on their part or just an apprehension about dealing kind of outside of their wheelhouse? Well, so what we found is kind of interesting. So we are rarely hired by the communications function of a company, rarely. We are almost exclusively hired by the government relations function or by the general counsel, um, and in a couple of cases directly by the CEO because they were high-profile crisis situations. I assume you have to coordinate with the internal comms. And and then we certainly get brought in with 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 corporate communication, but but um, it's really it's been really kind of interesting, and I kind of scratched my head at first uh, when I first got in this side of the business when I came off the hill um, as to why corporate communications wouldn't be the ones hiring us, and it has happened. Okay. Don't get me wrong, but generally speaking, it's not, um, and it's because that that's just not where most companies play if that makes sense in 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 communication. Yeah, they're, they're worried about media and stakeholders and shareholders. Driving shareholder value, communicating about the company, um, C-suite, um, um, you know, executive communication—all these things that have to be done and are that are important to, to do—and there and marketing communication. You got a lot of really good marketing communicators, um, but it is—it's a—it's di- different than than what what we're discussing on the advocacy front. And it's because most companies outside of uh, you know, some highly regulated um, telecoms, for instance, or highly regulated uh, um, energy concerns, like, you know, ExxonMobil, for instance. Those, those are different because they're constantly in these battles. But a normal manufacturing company, even of pretty big size, or a normal energy company that's not an ExxonMobil, or, um, they, they are simply not in these battles, so they don't need to have this expertise um, in-house. And so um, that's good for people like me well and you've actually taken this one step further that i'm not aware 
of many other of your competitors doing. You were recently, or maybe not recently, but you were in recent years, hired to go embed with a company and restructure their entire corporate communications team. That's, that's How true. did that come about? Uh, it was a bit of an oddity, uh, but we were hired uh, by an energy company, and they essentially were having a, a, a really large turnover with their their CEO was leaving. They were bringing in the board was bringing in a new CEO. The CEO also happened to be the founder of the company, uh, so they were making a whole bunch of changes. The general counsel uh, was given the government affairs community relations, corporate communication function. Not exactly the traditional background for that. No, and he was very honest about it. He goes, I don't know one thing about any of this. <laughs> he handed us a stack of notebooks, I'm not kidding, about two feet high, put them on the table, and said, figure it out. <laughs> so they had no interest in the end game being uh, saving money, Right. If that was a byproduct, fine. That wasn't the end game. The end game was to streamline the decision making because they felt they just had way too many people in these in these functions and without defined jobs. And so that, that's what it ended up being, yeah. And so it came about because we actually, in that case, didn't get hired directly. They hired a management company to come in and, and look at various parts of their company, and we were a subcontractor to that management company to to come in and and figure out this government relations and corporate communication function and how to get it streamlined and get re- reporting. And it did ultimately end up in some, um, you know, some, some rearranging chairs on the deck. Um, how long did that take? The pr- whole process for this part of it was probably about six months. Okay. Um, and, you know, and it's difficult, and you have to be fair and honest with the people that you're dealing with. And I, you, know, you can't go in and talk to somebody one time and say, well, you're, you're not going to be doing this job anymore. Yeah, right. uh, that's not fair to them. So we didn't try to figure out any, any individual's worth or not to the company. We tried to figure out what their um, job was worth to the company as opposed to the person. And, uh, and then if that could be better aligned uh, in some way or if it needed to exist at all. And in some cases, the job didn't exist, but they the, they valued the person and kept the person in a different role. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, it was really interesting. They were going through a much larger corporate realignment. And I think the corporate realignment probably took closer to a year. But this, mm-hmm. but this part of it took. Had about you done anything like months. that before? Um, not really. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> not so really. How did you how did you tackle this? I mean, going in, what was the thought process on how well, I, are we going to do this? So I can, you know, I, I came out of you know, I came out of the um, political world and yeah. the campaign world, okay. and I always said that you know, building a campaign is like building a small business, and you stand it up very quickly. It's like a startup, and you end it very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. and, and so that's how I related to this thing. It's like you have to get the job done. And they got to figure it out in a relatively short period of time, and uh, it's it's more complicated in in the corporate world, but that was how I, that was how I compared it to in my head. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. So have you all discovered a particular niche that you market as opposed to a lot of your uh, counterparts, competitors in this space? So we don't pick a niche in terms of issues. Okay. Uh, We feel like that our niche is in the advocacy Mm -hmm. uh, and that we can learn the issue over time. Now, having said that, we certainly have had um, a lot in the energy space. We've had a lot in the harm reduction space, meaning like vapor products, that sort of thing. Uh, and we've had a lot in the um, pharmaceutical and another healthcare space. And so we actually ended up starting it with a, a full book of business. We literally didn't, we didn't have oh, any more great. capacity. Because marketing has to be extremely difficult. It is difficult because many people don't understand what it is that you do. Uh, but yeah, on day one, we were at full capacity with half a dozen people. And you know, not many people can do that. I don't know that I would have had the guts, frankly, to go and start a business if I didn't have the near capacity or capacity uh, in terms of clients. So yeah, we were able to start on day one with a full book of business and um, yeah, and go from there, which is a much easier way, <laughs> much easier way to do it. Um, than, Absolutely than, right. Uh, that that's got to be the biggest challenge, and probably would keep you up at night is how to attract new clients. Right now, having said that, I still wake up, you know virtually every night terrified <laughs> or every morning terrified well it uh, seems like you could easily get some new line of work in certain areas because for instance you have a certain personal expertise with transportation safety issues care to tell the pitchfork story oh <laughs> <laughs> i was wondering where you were going with that but yes it's one of my claims to fame is that there's a bridge that spans from the Potomac River from Virginia to, to, to Maryland, and in go, crossing that bridge one day, actually it was a Sunday, but we had just struck a deal on Medicare, and I was going into the Hill to do a press conference with the majority leader uh, to help set it up and to announce the, the deal we'd struck, going across the bridge, and a big industrial-sized pitchfork mounted on the side of a, a tree truck comes loose, came loose. He was going the opposite way that I was going. Came loose and smashed through my car window. I'm probably going 60 miles an hour one way. He's going 60 the other. Smashed through. And the only reason that I'm alive today is because part of that pitchfork went through the frame of the car. I mean, just pierced right through the frame of the car. That stopped it. The rest of it came through the windshield. Ended up stopping about 12 or 18 inches from my face. And I was unscathed. Like, not a, not a scratch, whatever. And I believe that it was a slow news day that Sunday and the Monday following because the local Fox station heard it on the police scanner, <clears throat> called me at my house a few hours later and asked if they could do a story on it. I'm like, well, yeah, I can't stop you. Do a story. So they did a story on the, you know, the local Fox, WTTG. Um, Ed Henry, who is now at... Um, uh, Fox News. At the time, he was at Roll Call. He heard it on the local talk radio station, WTOP, and he's like, you guys should do this story. Then he does. So anyway, it it snowballed, and over the course of it, ends up on the front page of the Washington Post um, local section with two pictures, ended up on uh, a CNN piece, an NPR, Kansas City Star, Houston Weird. It was so weird. Like, was it, you know, I think it was the weird nature of the... Oh, it's a bizarre story. I mean, you're so lucky to get 
to walk away from it like you did, but yeah. it is, you, you don't hear about that stuff happening. Certainly to people you know and in your backyard. I just assumed when the – was it the Richmond TV station or Richmond paper earlier this year ran it again that you must have been desperate for new clients and you were prodding someone to run the story one more time. Yeah. <laughs> well, somebody ran it again earlier, right? Well, that was the thing. So it was, I, think, I believe this happened about 13 years ago. Yeah. A year ago, I got a call from a Richmond TV station, and they wanted to do a story on this and wanted to know if they could drive up from Richmond, which is a two-hour drive, hour and a half, two-hour drive, and interview me. And I said, absolutely happy to do it. But just so you know, this happened like well more than a decade ago. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know. Like, okay. <laughs> Fine. About a slow news day. <laughs> they were doing a story on um, on road debris. And I guess this was the uh, okay. this was the most uh, bizarre story they could find that didn't have a tragic ending. Yeah. And, uh, and so whatever they, happened to the pitchfork, by the way? Uh, I have it in my office, mounted on a piece of wood. Shelly, my wife, is not happy. She doesn't love it. I but think that's uh, that that's a totem. You'd but I've to carried it that. around for years to different offices. I put it. I had it in the Capitol. Uh, right after That'd it happened, I brought, and I got in. weird looks from the uh, Capitol Hill police officers. Post 9-11, say that. walking in with a yes, pitchfork. Yes, yeah. yes. Like, mm, <laughs> not sure about that, son. Oh, man. <laughs> so, okay, you brought up campaigns, and that's a great pivot point to talk a little bit more about your experience and your background. You once led a successful campaign for a Senate candidate and then who became senator. Was that your entree to Washington, D.C. politics? So, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> my, my first job was in the mailroom of the National Republican Senatorial Committee nice. uh, for Excellent. about nine months. And uh, yeah, I'm, By the way, you're the, the second expert who started in a mailroom in the Senate. Is that so right? that's a proud trajectory. It's a proud tradition. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, – I might as well – when I got that job, I might as well – have been the legislative director for the Senate majority leader in my mind. I mean, it was, I was so happy just to be in Washington, D.C. and have a job. And I was the proudest mail deliverer you've ever seen. I wore a suit every day and a tie and probably the best dressed mail boy um, in D.C. at the time. But no, that was how I started and then ended up doing various campaigns. Um, and then the campaign you're talking about was <clears throat> Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell in Colorado. Uh, and I was his campaign manager. He had run successfully three times as a Democrat in the House, one time as a Democrat in the Senate, had switched parties, and this was the first time he ran as a Republican. And a motorcycle-riding Republican. <clears throat> ponytail, yep. bolo tie-wearing, yep. motorcycle-riding Republican senator. And as you might imagine, having been a switch parties in the middle of his first term in the Senate, uh, Democrats didn't care for him very much, and Republicans didn't trust him, mm. and his numbers reflected that. Um, and so uh, in the spring or late winter of his election year, uh, when he was in cycle, uh, there was a, a, a spat, and his campaign manager left, and I happened to be working with the campaign through the Republican Senatorial Committee then, and uh, when I took the job to be the, the campaign manager, Senator McConnell, who was the chairman of the NRSC at the time, um, called me into his office to congratulate me. 
and he said, I don't do a very good McConnell imitation, but he, he basically said, he said, Stuart, I'm really glad you're going to be the campaign manager because this campaign has the smell of death. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thanks, I Okay, guess. <laughs> yeah, so too late. <laughs> but we did win. You we, did win. We, well we done. You resurrected it. I love that. Well, the funny part of the whole story is I had gotten married a month before this happened. And I came home that night, and I said, Honey, what do you think about Colorado? <laughs> and we moved to Colorado the next month. Oh, that's great. How long were you out there? About six uh, months, a uh, year? Almost, yeah, almost like nine months, eight or nine months, yeah, something okay. like that. Did you think about going in, in-house with him when he won, going to the office? I don't know why, but no. Yeah. Um, I have two friends. Well, I guess I do know why. He already had a press secretary and communications there director. And they were friends of mine, still are to this day. And uh, so I guess, no. Had I been a little smarter, though, I might have just stayed in Denver because, my gosh, Colorado's beautiful. No doubt about that. But when you did come back, you, did you return to the NRSC? Uh, when I came back, I did go back to the NRSC, uh, but I got a promotion. I had been the, at the time, I'd been the deputy communications director. And then when I did the campaign, um, I became the communications director. Were there some real challenging races during that period? Um, there were, and we held the majority by the skin of our teeth that, that election cycle. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had that weird uh, um, election in Missouri that year where um, the person who won the Senate election in Missouri had actually died in a plane crash a week or two before the election. Yep. Um, so very odd circumstances there. Not funny, but I mean, it's odd circumstances. Uh, so yeah, there was always, there's always something quirky in elections. And that s- cycle, as luck would have it, um, my wife was pregnant with our first child and literally was due on election day. It just so happened, obviously, we, well not obviously, but we live in Virginia. And Senator Chuck Robb, who was a Democrat from Virginia, was up for re-election. And some reporter, I don't remember who it was now, called me because he'd heard that my wife was doing election day. thought he would do a little story about it because she's, you know, it's kind of funny. Guy, human, interest. human interest, the communications director for the campaign committee. His wife's doing election day. What are the odds? And I said that I can be a little bit of a smart aleck. And so I told the reporter, I said, well, actually, we're kind of glad that she's uh, – that she's due on Tuesday, because that way Chuck Robb won't be the only Virginian getting his butt slapped on Election Day. <laughs> and I thought it was quite funny. Then it came out, and I was like, you know, I'm not so sure that uh, George Allen, who was running against Chuck Robb, would want me to say that. I'm like, I, maybe I'll have to call him, let him know. So I ended up calling the campaign. I was going to call the campaign manager and go, hey, I hope this is okay, because it's, it's already in the paper today. And the the lady that answered the phone, she's like, you know, who can I say who's calling? I'm like, oh, it's Stuart Roy. She goes, the Stuart Roy? And I'm like, what do you mean? Because I'm not famous. She's like, weren't you just quoted, like, about our race? I'm like, yeah. She goes, oh, my God, that was so awesome. We've got it taped to the front door. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I figured it was okay. Sure. <laughs> I love that quote, too. But, yes, you have to get by. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest uh, just shooting your mouth off. <laughs> All right, so – you also did something that not everybody in this town does. You became a communications 
essentially communications director, really deputy assistant secretary, director of public affairs for the Department of Labor. Now you're focused on a different sort of mission and you're worried about a different type of person because being a cabinet secretary is totally different than being a member of Congress. Being a cabinet, they don't like it when you say this, but being a cabinet secretary is glorified staff, right? You are the president's staff. <clears throat> you're not elected by anybody. You are confirmed by the Senate, but you're not elected by anybody, and you work for the, at the pleasure of the president. The two big biggest learnings, and I hate that term, but I just used it, uh, that I got from working at Department of Labor from the campaign side was sheer size. Um, at that point in time, and I doubt it's any different now, at that point in time, Department of Labor um, had 78 people in their public affairs division. Wow. Whereas when I was communications director at the NRSC, we had five. Was, <laughs> it, was it that large because it was a holdover from the Clinton administration? Or was it? No, it's because in campaigns and politics, we think of communications as media relations. That's communications. Whereas in a corporate environment or in a, um, in, in this case, a, um, a governmental body, you know, Department of Labor, there's so many more elements to it where, yes, you have speechwriters working for the secretary. You do have a lot of media relations for the secretary, but that's really the, the minimal part of it. Uh, most of the media relations has to do with the actual um, – divisions that make up the Department of Labor, right, the, the agencies that make up, whether that's OSHA or uh, the Mine Safety and Health Administration or any of the other, I think there's 13 different agencies. And so they're take, doing a lot of enforcement actions. Okay, so you, when you leave the Department of Labor, you go to back to the Hill and you become communications director for the then House Majority Whip, who soon to, be, to become Majority Leader. Compare the stress levels of those two jobs. Well, they were both great jobs in their own way, um, but the the level of activity in the majority leader's office at that time was not really comparable to anything else I had done. Maybe it was kind of like the last stages of a campaign yeah. or something, but it was full speed, a full sprint all the time because at the time – um, the majority leader delay was considered the most powerful member of Congress by a lot of people. Certainly made things move on the Hill, and we had our fingers in every pie. But the ironic thing, I guess, or the interesting thing to me um, about that job was I didn't really want it. Is that right? Um, I, you know, I was working in the Department of Labor. I thought I was going to work there for a few more years, and then I was going to get out of the government campaign world and, and, and get a corporate job or some other private sector job. Uh, and I got a call from the um, majority leader's office and asked me to come interview. I was like, you know, I, you know, really flattered, and I appreciate it, but no, you know, I'm not, not really interested. It's not, you know, not what I want to do. And I didn't really think about it too much after that. <clears throat> and about a month later, they still hadn't filled the job, and they called me again, which is flattering, by the way. <laughs> and said, just come talk to us. I'm like, all right, I'll come talk to you. So I, I, I traipsed across the hill to uh, the Capitol, and when I walked in the leader's office, or leader's, well, it was actually the whip's office at the time, and out one door walks the Secretary of Commerce and his lead lobbyist. Out the other door walks out the U.S. Trade Representative and his lead lobbyist. We were, they, were, they were 
going into the final votes on what was then called Trade Promotion Authority, TPA. And so it was a huge vote. It ended up passing by one vote. It was dramatic and all the drama that goes along with it. And I was escorted back to the chief of staff's office. And as I was going there, there were three or four members of Congress sitting there waiting to meet with the chief of staff, a lady by the name of Susan Hirschman. And I was ushered in ahead of them. And her assistant came in and said, Susan, you know, Congressman so-and-so is, needs to meet with you. And she, Susan turned to her and she said, he'll just have to wait. And I, I was like, you know what? This place makes things happen. I need to work here. And uh, it was the best job I've, I've ever had because if you come, to, you know, most people when you come to D.C., you come for a reason. And you want to make change. You want to, you know, to, 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 to make a difference. And in that position, not because of me, but because of him, the position he held, um, you had a chance to do so. And as a communication professional, it was everything that you thought you would be doing. Instead of going and, you know, rank and file member, working for a rank and file member, which I've done before, you know, you go and you beg the, the uh, reporter to include your boss uh, quote in a story, you know, or maybe you've pitched a story or two. But when you work for the majority leader, you have access to information. You have, and you're dealing with the New York Times and CNN and Fox and Washington Post every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. And then what people don't, re- what don't, don't really understand is often it's not even political. I mean, obviously a lot of it is. But sometimes they need to know when's this vote going to occur. Is it going to happen before we have to go on with the news at 6? Yeah, right. and, uh, and they need help with this and that, uh, logistics. But if you're in this business in a, as, a, as a communicator, it's, that's fun, that's cool, that's great. And so from that respect, it was, just the, it was, the, it was the best job because you, you really made an impact or felt like you made an impact. Um, the challenge was yeah. um, that being the majority leader and being considered one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful member of Congress, you know, DeLay also had a target on his back. And every day... I would come home and just felt like I'd gotten beat up with a bat. And, uh, you know, after after a while, like, no matter how great the job was, uh, at, at some point in time, I just can't endure this every single day. Uh, but it was but it was a great, it was just a great job. So you knew it was time to leave. You went off to join DCI Group, right? Senior yep. VP there. Was... You you obviously have taken to that line of work because you you spent a good amount of time at DCI and then you become partner at Prism. Now you got your own space. Yep. Okay. How is it, and how did you know it was time to strike out on your own? Well, I knew it was time to leave the Hill because I just couldn't take it anymore. I mean, couldn't take the beating up anymore. Uh, I had the opportunity to work at DCI Group, and they're a tremendous uh, company. And, uh, and and that was where I really learned the transition from sort of being for a candidate or being for uh, a member of Congress and being the mouthpiece for them and then working more on the company side and working on public policy issues and advocacy. And I really learned the learned how to how to do that at DCI, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, had the opportunity, as you said, to to go to another firm, a bipartisan firm, um, and then. Seven years ago or so, started my firm now called Strategic Action Public Affairs, and we have about a half dozen people. And as we've 
discussed, you know, somewhat specialized in this, in the uh, yes corporate communications and yes crisis and a lot of advocacy. Stuart, let me. I have one last question for you. If we could transition towards the conclusion of this episode, so you have had a, a remarkable career here in town. You you've taken different pathways that have led to where you are now. You've bounced around. A lot of people do that. I've always said this town thrives on very full resumes. What kind of cogent, sage advice might you have for a young professional looking to make a start in Washington? The, what I would say, if I were to narrow it to a young professional trying to make a start in communications in this town, because that's what I know something about, right, um, is that don't get wrapped up in tactics, if that makes sense, um, because the narrative, the message, the strategy is everything. For instance, right now, everybody wants to talk about digital communication, especially when you're talking about advocacy, and it is a powerful tool, and it's great. However, it is a commodity, uh, and it is a tactic. Without the narrative that goes with your digital program, you can't attract people to take action on whatever it is you're trying to do. So number one is that. And number two, especially if you're on Capitol Hill or if you're in the government relations community, never forget that the toes you step on today just might be connected to the butt that you need to kiss tomorrow. (laughs) Well, that is a great piece of advice, Stuart. Man, does that make perfect sense. So look, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your Friday evening to host us. Uh, thank you for being a guestbert on 80 Proof Politics. And just remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Cheers. Outstanding. Thank you. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.